The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Anadella Subin. We talked about her new book, Accidental Gods, on men unwittingly turned divine. The book tells the stories of men who have inadvertently been turned into living gods, from Gandhi and Haile Selassie to Prince Philip and Narendra Modi. In the book, Anna shows how deification and violence were intertwined in the colonial enterprise and in the present-day cult of the political strongman. Yet, she argues, it's also a process that has been central to struggles for liberation. In our conversation, we focused on the chapters of the book on Haile Selassie and the emergence of the Rastafari in Jamaica in the 1930s, and on the history of deification in the British Raj regarding both the colonial authorities and the iconic leaders of the independence movement. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon, and also by Verso Books, who have lots of great left-wing titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One you might like to check out is Bad Gays, A Homosexual History by Hugh Lemmy and Ben Miller. Why must liberatory history be populated by heroes, and what if it isn't? Part revisionist history, part historical biography, and based on the hugely popular podcast series, Bad Gays subverts the notion of gay icons and queer heroes and asks what we can learn about LGBTQ history, sexuality and identity through its villains and baddies. From the Emperor Hadrian to notorious gangster Ronnie Cray, the authors excavate the buried history of queer lives. Described as a wry, rigorous account of centuries of gay villainy by Sean Fay, Bad Gays puts centre stage the queer villains and evil twinks of history. Bad Gays, a homosexual history by Hugh Lemmy and Ben Miller, is out now from Verso Books and part of their June Verso Book Club reading. And now to today's interview. Anna Della Subin is the author of Not Dead But Sleeping and a senior editor at Bidoon. Her writing has appeared in the London Review of Books, Harper's, The New York Times, The New Yorker and The Paris Review, among many other venues. If you'd like to hear the extended hour-length version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. So usually when we talk about someone becoming godlike, we tend to think of the attributes of omnipotence and omniscience and the ability to perform miracles and, and the idea of becoming godlike can be seen as something that is desirable. But in your account, the accidental gods that you describe, and within that category, you include not just the more slightly comical examples like Prince Philip, for instance, but also even Jesus Christ as well. Instead, those figures are instead often baffled, unhappy at being the objects of deification and constrained and even even tormented by their devotees. 
The first chapter of the book is on the emergence of the Rastafari movement in Jamaica in the 1930s and how Haile Selassie, the emperor of Ethiopia, known before his coronation as, as Rastafari, became the subject of devotion of this new religion or, or movement because obviously it also has a kind of political element to it as well. And this occurs following his coronation in 1930. For those who aren't very familiar with Rastafari beliefs, can you say something on how Selassie became the unwitting focal point of this new religion? An idea that, as you explain in the book, occurred simultaneously to several people in Jamaica and amongst the Jamaican diaspora. Yes, absolutely. So in 1930, Haile Selassie crowned himself emperor of Ethiopia in this spectacular coronation ceremony. He was deep in a battle of succession with other princely noblemen, so he needed to create a veneer of legitimacy on the international stage. So he invited delegates from across the earth to cover the event, and among them was the American Consul General who was covering it for National Geographic. And in the National Geographic account in particular, the author, Addison Southerd, spun this almost biblical account of the crowning of Haile Selassie. And he had one line in his piece in particular that seemed to suggest that King George's own son, the Duke of Gloucester, who was representing at the event, had actually gone down on bended knee before Haile Selassie in recognition of his sovereignty. And so on the other side of the world in Jamaica, People heard the news of the coronation. Um, some people heard it over the radio. Later, people saw this National Geographic issue. And that sentence in particular about a British sovereign actually recognizing the divinity of Haile Selassie seemed to several people had the same idea simultaneously that God is alive on earth right now, and he's a black man. And so that idea was deeply powerful on an island that was still under British colonial rule. And so on the island of Jamaica, there were several different founding fathers who had the idea. Most prominent among them was Leonard Howell. But the idea took off from there. But going back to what you mentioned about, you know, divinity in the stories in my book being kind of unwanted or unexpected or bewildering to its recipients. Haile Selassie himself was a deeply devout Orthodox Christian. And so when he finally did hear the news, and it took several years before he learned of his godhood, but he was by all accounts deeply dismayed and sent missionaries to Jamaica to try to convert his believers to his own God. But all these attempts at conversion failed because there's a strand of Rastafari theology that sees Haile Selassie as being, you know, God and also Christ. And so when Haile Selassie's missionaries attempted to baptize Rastafari believers in the name of Christ, they agreed knowing that Haile Selassie and Christ were were one and the same. And um, you point out in the book that it's not merely in sort of the more modern cases, but even very significant religious figures in the past have been recorded as denying that they themselves were gods of some kind. 
Yes. And I think, you know, in the case of Haile Selassie, it's paradoxical on several different levels. So Haile Selassie was recognized as being the Black God Almighty, and his deification drew on older traditions, prophetic traditions of Ethiopianism, older kind of prophecies that look toward a Black Messiah's arrival. However, Haile Selassie himself didn't identify as Black. He considered himself Semitic. And figures like Marcus Garvey, who is, you know, very prominent trade unionist, activist, writer, powerful orator. He wrote off Haile Selassie as being an ally in the struggle. However, he himself became folded into Rastafari theology as a kind of John the Baptist figure who had heralded Haile Selassie's coming with, with a prophecy that it seems is completely apocryphal, yet was attributed to Garvey. And there is a second layer of paradox in that the religion became known as Rastafari which was Ross is a title, kind of like Duke. Safari was his birth first name. But after his coronation, Haile Selassie became his sanctified baptismal name, meaning power of the Trinity. And the emperor would actually fine anyone who called him Rastafari. That was seen as kind of insulting. But yet the religion itself was named Rastafari. On the moment of the emergence and this moment when, as you say, many different people came to the same conclusion about Haile Selassie after his coronation in, in Ethiopia, if we imagine that Selassie had been crowned not in the 1930s, but at, perhaps at the end of the 19th century or a decade or so earlier, do you think the same would have occurred or do you think it was just so much to do with the political climate of the time and, and the stirrings of the worldwide anti-colonial movement? Yeah, I think absolutely it, it was born out of the precise moment in which the coronation occurred. It's also one thing that interests me a lot across the book is how new technologies actually become new ways of doing theology. Um, so, you know, the, the format of the glossy magazine with color photographs or the radio. It was very much born out of that precise moment, not only because of what communications were possible, but also also the climate of, you know, the island of Jamaica itself under British colonial rule. There had been the possibility for peoples in the Caribbean to migrate to the U.S. and around the same time, there's a law that is passed that is effectively forbidding immigration to the states and that that's very much in the in the kind of moment and there's also this powerful current at the same time of the idea that the descendants of enslaved peoples in Jamaica should return to Africa and this, so, this is Garvey and the, and the Black Star Line and, and so on. Yes, exactly. And so a number of different Rastafari thinkers are examining the possibilities of returning to Africa, to Ethiopia, which had always been this kind of powerful symbol. Ethiopia was the only territory in Africa, of course, to have withstood the encroachment of Europe. So it was this kind of symbol of freedom. And then it turns out that Haile Selassie, at a certain point, that there's actually land grants that are available to Rastafaris to repatriate 
to Ethiopia and settle in a territory called Shashamane, which I write about in the book. Going back to that point about the role of new media in this, so as you've already mentioned, the coronation was covered extensively in, in Time and, and the National Geographic magazine. And you describe how in the latter case, the magazine itself almost becomes a part of the scripture of the new religion and was used even by those out proselytizing for the new faith. Can you talk a little bit about, about particularly the case of National Geographic and how ironic that was given the magazine's policies at the time? Yes, yeah, so National Geographic itself had deeply racist membership policies. It forbade Black people from being members of the society or for using the library at their headquarters in Washington, D.C. And they made an exception for Haile Selassie, considering him also to be Semitic and not Black. But then when the invasion of Italy happens, National Geographic prints pieces celebrating Mussolini and the rise of the new Roman Empire. Yes, this is 1935. Yes. The politics of National Geographic itself are deeply opposed to the Rastafari theology that draws upon it, that elevates it into a scripture. But by the 1950s, you have anthropologists in Kingston who witness preachers on the street corners holding a copy of National Geographic in one hand and a copy of the Bible on the other hand and are are using it to preach the word of Haile Selassie. It's interesting to compare it as a text to other accounts of the coronation, such as the Harper's account, which was just kind of incredibly deeply racist, as a lot of the coverage was. What's really interesting about early Rastafari scriptures is the way they're kind of able to take all these different kinds of documents and kind of shred them, repurpose them, and turn them into into sacred texts. There's this text that I write about in the book called The Royal Parchment Scroll of Black Supremacy, which was created by this figure called the Reverend Ballantine. And he kind of recognizes that one of the ways in which white supremacy gets constructed is through just truly insipid bureaucracy, the endless need for identification and registration, just paperwork, you know, is something that both the British and the Americans excel at, that all this paperwork are kind of innocuous hidden tools that conceal white power. So in the Royal Parchment Scroll, he kind of takes all of these different documents, this kind of boilerplate language, and chops it up to kind of turn it into a liturgy that sanctifies Blackness and that prophecies the divinity of Haile Selassie, as well as his wife, the Empress Menen. And so that becomes another foundational scripture for Rastafari. On that idea of repurposing, that also seems to apply just in general to how the Rastafari took up both Christianity and also the English language. So although they rejected the form of Christianity supported by the British colonial authorities, which of course was implicated in the process of slavery and the continued immiseration of black Jamaicans after abolition, Nonetheless, it was also built upon an interpretation of the Bible, although supplemented by other ideas. Could you talk a bit about how Rastafari thinkers responded to the Christianity they had been brought up with, as well as the way the new religion sought to transform belief, even at the level of everyday language? 
Yeah. So many people were brought up with this idea that white imperialism had exported across the earth that God is white um, if he's God the Father. But there is also this sense, as uh, this figure, Henry McNeil Turner, once said, you know, there is no hope for people who don't believe that they themselves look like God. And so many of the early Rastafari founders were reading the Bible in a very, you know, close, deeply analytic way to find clues to confirm their suspicions that God was Black and God was alive on earth. And so they were drawing upon the prophecies of the Bible. Going back to what you mentioned about language, they're kind of taking, you know, the English is the language of the colonizers, just as Christianity is the religion of the colonizers. But they're taking English and saying English is notorious in that often it, it's words don't mean what they sound like or, or two words will, you know, sound the same and have very different meanings. And so certain Rastafari intellectuals were insisting, you know, that words should mean what they say. So in the language that arises out of Rastafari called Ayarik, which takes its name from the Ethiopian Amhara, they take words such as sincerely, which contains the word sin. So it kind of stands opposite to the actual meaning of sincerely, which, which, you know, connotes that you're doing something with a kind of earnest, honest truthfulness. And so they reimagine it as insincerely, removing the word sin, or a word such as dedicate, which conveys that you devote your life to a certain cause, such as Haile Selassie contains the word dead in it, which seems to completely contradict the meaning. So dedicate becomes livicate. So they're insisting that words mean what they say. And they also come up with a new pronoun that conveys the first person self in constant reference to the divine. So that's the pronoun of the I and I. It's this kind of doubled first person of the self constantly in reference to the divine, which it's really an act of kind of staking back divinity for oneself after centuries of Christian imperialism that has claimed that the conquerors know more about religion and are closer to God than the peoples they've oppressed. Do you think that the formula of I and I, do you see it as, as well as being related to religious feeling? Do you see it as also perhaps a way of pushing back against bourgeois individualism, which is so central to the colonial project, of course, and that it sort of suggests a, a more plural idea of, of identity? Yes, absolutely. It kind of captures the sense of the collective and the communal and in every single breath in a really, truly you know, beautiful way. It's kind of a taking a stance against what's, you know, the Rastafari call Babylon, which is like the entire capitalist, colonialist, you know, complex of the universe that we're all trapped inside at the moment. So to use the I and I is a kind of rejection of all of that. And it, it's a way of imagining a new alternative future embodied in oneself. 
whether it's Christianity or, or language or new technology, do you see this process of repurposing as entirely a positive one? Because I suppose another way of looking at it would be that the Rastafari couldn't sufficiently break out of the ideology of the colonizers and everything was you know, built upon, even if it's refuting it, but nonetheless still built upon things that were created by the imperial powers. No, I think that that, you know, this, this act of repurposing, it's almost like kind of birds building nests of meaning out of whatever kind of twigs and branches come to hand. This is what we all do always. I think it's just, you know, this is how like human creativity deeply works. And you would see the same exact process if you look at how the Bible itself was formed, you know, all of the different older texts and traditions that were collated and canonized into the Bible. It's the same, the same exact situation in many ways. Yeah, so I think this is just how we as humans try to make meaning out of whatever is nearest at hand to us to try to improve our circumstances, which are often very, very difficult, you know, in context of incredible hardship and oppression. You mentioned earlier that a lot of Haile Selassie's prestige was bound up with the fact of Ethiopia being pretty much the only territory in, in Africa to survive the so-called scramble for Africa in the late 19th century. But of course, as you also point out, eventually Ethiopia succumbed to Italian imperialism with Mussolini's invasion in 1935. Can you talk about how the Rastafari responded to the second Italian invasion carried out by Mussolini and, and the fact of Selassie's eventual forced exile into England? Because one might imagine that this would simply be a sort of devastating blow and it would serve to show that the Rastafari were simply wrong about Haile Selassie and that the entire project was built on a, on a, on a faulty belief. Yes, so quite the contrary. The invasion of Ethiopia actually deeply galvanized Rastafari thinking. Many Rastafari in Jamaica actually tried to enroll in the Ethiopian army to go and fight to defend Ethiopia. And all of these different ideas were circulating in Jamaica at the time. There's the idea of the duppy, which is this kind of like spirit creatures who exist all around us. And there are kind of ideas of sending armies, not only of Jamaicans, but armies of duppies to go and fight to defend Haile Selassie. And it just, you know, it couldn't but appear biblical to many people because here was, you know, the Romans again arresting the divine figure. So Haile Selassie was very much likened to Christ. And monetary donations poured in from Rastafari. And that was really kind of the moment when the religion gained recognition on an international scale when people really became aware that this movement existed and it also when Haile Selassie himself learned about it although we don't know the exact moment when he first heard of it. It's interesting that there is this moment of internationalism and people wanting to support the struggle against Italian fascism in Ethiopia, because I think, you know, typically if you ask somebody for an instance of internationalism during the 1930s, they will think of, of the Spanish Civil War. And obviously, it's also the case that the Rastafari became very sympathetic to the project of, of democratic socialism in, in Jamaica. Do you feel like it's an aspect of the anti-fascist politics of the time that's maybe a bit overlooked? 
It definitely, Rastafari, you know, beginning then, but through the 1970s is kind of a kind of deeply powerful mode of conveying democratic socialist ideas. It kind of makes most famously through the music of Bob Marley later on, but it does become this this fountainhead such that by the 1970s with the election of Michael Manley, who actually draws upon his relationship with Rastafari leaders such as the radical Claudius Henry, who's a kind of notorious Rastafari figure. But Michael Manley is actually able to win the election in part because of all of the support from Rastafari in Jamaica. And then he's able to begin implementing democratic socialist reforms. So it, it is very much a kind of powerful force in that in that way. There tends to be a, quite a bit of variation in the way in which the Rastafari are talks about and analysed, sometimes more emphasis is placed on the religious angle and, and sometimes more on, on the political. Do you think there can be a temptation to want to very much downplay the religious aspect of the Rastafari in order to make the movement seem perhaps more respectable and for its themes of black empowerment to be more legible to people who are not religious? Yeah, I think there hasn't been, you know, so much of an attempt to understand the theology of Rastafari, particularly just not to, you know, read its texts, which, you know, many of them are quite beautiful and quite poetic. And there is this current to just want to politicize it or reduce it to the music and to not look at its kind of ideas of the sacred. But I guess in my book in general, I'm sort of pushing back against dividing politics from religion or partitioning them as, you know, two separate different spheres. I'm kind of trying to show how they're always deeply intertwined using this idea that I lay down in the book of mythopolitics. The Socialism Conference is back. The largest socialism conference in North America returns this September 2nd to September 5th in Chicago and registration is now live. Join hundreds of other activists, organisers, abolitionists and socialists for four days of discussion and debate about radical politics, history and strategy. Participate in panels, lectures and workshops on class struggle unionism, police and prison abolition, black feminism, reproductive justice, working-class internationalism, capitalist crisis, tenant organising, Palestinian liberation, and much more. Speakers at Socialism 2022 will include Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Robin D.G. Kelly, David Harvey, Harsha Walia, Derricka Purnell, Olafemi Otaiwo, Kim Kelly, Mohammed Al-Kurd, Anand Gopal, Sophie Lewis, and many more. The Socialism Conference is brought to you by Haymarket Books, Visit socialismconference.org to learn more and register today. Register before July 8th for the early bird discounted rate. One of the most extraordinary moments of the history of, of the Rastafari is when in 1966, the conservative Jamaican Labour Party 
invites Haile Selassie on an official state visit to the country with the hope that he would publicly deny his divinity or perhaps that people seeing that Selassie was merely a man would, you know, would do something to puncture the aura that surrounded him. But as you describe in the book, the state visit seemed to have quite the opposite effect, even in spite of the fact that, as you described, Selassie was not you know, very happy about the religion that, that was founded in his, his former name. And the visit, as you described, very much served to legitimate the Rastafari in, in Jamaica. Could you describe the visit a little bit? Yes. So, you know, crowds of thousands of people gathered at the airport in Kingston to await the arrival of Haile Selassie's Ethiopian Airlines plane. And all of these kind of mythic stories swirl around his landing in Jamaica, that, it, you know, the skies were raining. And then when the plane broke through the clouds, the sun started shining and Haile Selassie touched down on Earth. And it was this kind of powerfully ecstatic and legitimizing moment where the entire island was just transfixed by Haile Selassie's arrival. And there was a reception that was held at the governor's residence to which Rastafari leaders were actually invited into these kind of hallowed bureaucratic halls of power. And so just that their physical presence among the bourgeois elite Jamaicans was a profoundly kind of subversive force. As Haile Selassie was leaving the airport, there was a huge procession that formed along the road leading out from the airport. And in the crowd was Rita Marley, who famously saw Haile Selassie waving to her and she saw the stigmata in his palm and she told her husband Bob about it and that led to his conversion to the new religion. And so it, it was this kind of watershed moment on the island that would forever be remembered as one of the holiest days on the Rastafari calendar. But there were many different conflicting ideas as to whether Haile Selassie had actually denied his divinity or not on this trip, because some say that he had said to the Rastafari, do not worship me, I am not God. But then others recorded that he said, I am who you think I am. So it, the visit <laughs> didn't accomplish anything that the <laughs> Jamaican government had set out to achieve. Yeah. Quite the opposite. I, I mean, is there any possibility that Selassie arrives and you know sees the cheering crowds and you know has his head turned a little bit? Thinks, oh, you know, this might be all right being a god. Yeah, I think you know there there are different accounts. There is also a story that he used to read letters that Rastafari worshippers would send him when he was alone at night in his private study and that he would be very moved reading them. And so I think, you know, there is kind of the question of how he felt, you know, on a on deeper level about being seen as divine, even though he did make several public statements where he came out against the idea of himself or any any human being worshipped as divine. Mm. Well, that's just the beauteous humility that you would expect of a god, I suppose. Um, <laughs> so if we turn to another chapter of the book, the sixth chapter is on the, the British colonisation of the Indian subcontinent and the phenomena of British soldiers and colonial officials and even Queen Victoria being deified by the communities that they ruled over. Now, you know, sort of on the face of it, there's a very, potentially a very straightforward reading of, of those acts of deification that would see them as evidence of 
acquiescence in imperialism and, and displaying a quite positive view of the authorities. But you argue that the reality was, was far more complex than that, and, and that for one thing, deification of both the dead and the living had a long history in, in the region, and such gods were by no means seen as uniformly benevolent. Could you talk a bit about this aspect of, of Britain's colonial history in the region? Yes, so there's this incredible number of stories that were recorded during the British Empire's rule in, in India of British colonial officers and administrators and soldiers who died, who were worshipped at tomb shrines, very often with offerings of brandy or gin and cigars. So this becomes a kind of trope that you see just over and over again, whether it's in colonial travelogues, diaries, kind of histories, or, you know, the foundational texts of the study of religion itself and early kind of classic works of anthropology. Again and again, you find these stories of British officers worshipped with brandy and cigars. And so the British kind of embrace these stories as proof of the British being like a, a people set apart as the transcendent rulers, you know, or it's used in Parliament as a kind of proof that colonialism itself is so inhumane that colonized peoples can only see colonizers as supernatural. Demons and devils. Yes, exactly. But, you know, the British, as they're avidly recording these stories, they're not making much of an attempt to understand what the actual traditions of worship in India were before their arrival. And so in the case of the stories of worshipped British officers at tomb shrines, in some cases they're tapping into this very ancient tradition of deifying those who died in tragic, accidental, violent, sudden ways. There was this idea that those who had died violently weren't going to be able to reincarnate. They became kind of malevolent spirits or souls who would need to be appeased. And so it was really kind of an act of deifying not the dead itself, but death itself, the power of death. It was kind of a way to mediate with it. There was this idea that the dead kind of became the violence that they had experienced. And so at these different tomb shrines, people could come to seek cures for illnesses or infertility or just, you know, any kind of um, prayer they might have. And some of these shrines were the graves of deceased British officers. In one case, it also included the grave of a British officer's favorite horse. But what's so interesting, and which I look at in my book, is how these stories actually become the raw material for the scholars in the metropole, particularly in Oxford, who are constructing what we now recognize as the modern concept of religion itself. So these are figures like Max Mueller or Edward Burnett Tyler, who are writing the really foundational canonical texts that define what religion is. And so they're invoking these stories of British officers worshipped as tomb shrines to kind of paint a portrait 
of places like India as being somehow religiously irrational and fanatical and in need of kind of continued British civilizing and missionary activity. So the stories become these kind of deeply nefarious tools of power and are reproduced just again and again. You describe how some of those scholars of religion were engaged in this project of classification and, and codification of, of religions in the region. And you, you talk about how this had the effect of creating far stricter and cleaner sort of divides between various strands of religious practice and, and tradition that, than had existed hitherto. For instance, I think, I think you point out that just the idea of, of Hinduism was something that was partly an introduction of the British and that that wasn't a term that was really known to supposed Hindus themselves at the time. Can you talk about that process of, of creating these starker divides between religions and, and also what some of the consequences of that process were? The most striking case, obviously, in that regard, I suppose, would be India and, and Pakistan. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, the word itself, Hinduism, was imposed upon just a kind of myriad array of different sacred ideas and practices and rituals on the subcontinent. One of the first recorded usages of the word Hinduism has, right, as the word before it, renounce. So it's this kind of, it's kind of begins its existence as this deeply polemical idea. And it attempts to kind of cover as an umbrella many different traditions that are very opposed to one another as well. But it's this moment where all of the world's different sacred practices are being classified into these different categories. So Hinduism becomes framed as something that's completely opposite to Islam, for instance, even though you would have groups who see the Prophet Muhammad as being an avatar of Vishnu. There are many different kind of mixed, you know, what now one might call syncretic traditions that mixed these completely artificial categories together. And so what I'm, I'm showing in my book is how, you know, so many ideas about the sacred don't fall under these categories of religions that were imposed by the colonizers onto places like India. One instance of that in, in the book is in the story of the Brigadier General John Nicholson and his very unlikely deification. He becomes this figure of worship for a group that includes Sikhs, Hindus, and also Muslims. And this faith that coalesces around him just completely confounds the categories of religions such as they're imposed, kind of revealing just how artificial and damaging this idea is, particularly because what constitutes a religion itself was made entirely in the image of Christianity. So for these scholars such as Mueller, Tyler, a religion is something that sufficiently resembles Christianity. So all of the ingredients that compose it, that it has houses of worship and scriptures and rituals, it's all made to fit a Christian mode in a way that that is deeply alien to traditions themselves. So the idea of belief becomes kind of the essential core of a religion in a way that at many times and places 
it's been much more about practices and rituals and the kind of coming together of communities to create meaning rather than kind of solitary, deeply internal belief. Do you think those religious traditions after independence were able to shake off some of that influence that had attempted to create more strict divides between different traditions? Or do you think, unfortunately, they have been the very much the inheritors of that project and in some ways may have even further deepened them? I know obviously we're talking at a moment of, of extreme Hindu nationalism in India in particular. Yes, exactly. So I think it's only become more and more kind of polarised and hate-filled in India, you know, Modi Modi is a figure who also appears in the book who is deified and there are a number of different groups that have built temples to Modi or created hymns and scriptures and idols of him as this kind of what he stands for as a god is sectarian violence is and Islamophobia and, you know, it's, he's in many ways the kind of apotheosis of the divisions that were seeded in the British colonial age. He's also portrayed in terms of a kind of hyper-masculinity as well, I suppose. Yes, absolutely. So he's kind of inherited these ideas of masculinity, which I write about in the book, which were also very much a kind of contagion of imperialism. I write about how this trope of the white man who's mistaken for God actually becomes a kind of role model figure for generations of British schoolboys, not only British, but across the kind of English-speaking world, when the Brigadier General John Nicholson, who is worshipped as a god and who is kind of famous for his violence and his angry temper and just the kind of gruesome tortures that he inflicted upon people, but he actually makes his way into the first edition of the Boy Scouts manual, where there's a play in which young boys can act out being the Brigadier General John Nicholson trying to oppress a group of Indian officers. He was directly involved in putting down the the so-called Indian mutiny as well, right? Yes, exactly. So he's one of the officers leading the suppression of the mutiny in 1857, and then he's killed very early on. There's a story that he lay dying in his tent, but people were kind of chattering outside of the door, and it was irritating him. So he would just take his gun and fire through the the fabric of the tent to get them to be quiet. And then he died in There were British myths that a number of his Indian worshippers were so distraught by his death that they also committed suicide. This is according to British accounts. But his legend, you know, he becomes this kind of Boy Scout role model. And he also famously enters the stories of Kipling. He appears in Kim. And he also makes his way into Samuel Smiles' book, self-help, which is kind of the foundation of the self-help genre in many ways, where he's used as an example of of someone with titanic energy and heroic greatness. So it's as if to say, how should a man be? Well, he should be like one who gets mistaken for a god. 
Yeah, uh, it makes me think sort of immediately of, of Jordan Peterson, you know, so uh, <laughs> tidy your room and put down the natives. <laughs> and become divine. <laughs> You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.